The Word of God, the Holy Bible, is a treasure and a gift beyond compare. Every passage of it points to a marvelous truth that God's love for man impelled him to step out of eternity and unite with his creation in order to redeem him from sin. Jesus Christ is both the author and subject of this precious word. Join us at the Superior Word each week as we search out this wonderful gift in search of Christ Jesus. Okay, here we go. Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. He shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that brings forth its fruit in its season, whose leaf also shall not wither, and whatever he does shall prosper." The ungodly are not so, but are like the chaff which the wind drives away. Therefore, the ungodly shall not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the ungodly shall perish. Okay, our sermon today is from Leviticus 23. We're starting the feasts of the Lord. We've got a lot of verses to get through, so we got to move quickly. This is Leviticus 23, verses 1 through 3. <laughs> Verse 1, And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel, and say to them, The feasts of the Lord, which you shall proclaim to be holy convocations, these are my feasts. Six days shall work be done, but the seventh day is a Sabbath of solemn rest, a holy convocation. You shall do no work on it. It is the Sabbath of the Lord in all your dwellings. We enter today into the feasts of the Lord. There are varying views on these feasts, but in a quick categorical outline, we can identify a few major ones. The first is that these feasts are for Israel. Some even call them Feasts of Israel or Jewish Feasts. Type either of those into your search engine and immediately will come up quite a few sites which say these are the Feasts of Israel or these are Jewish Feasts. This is wrong from the outset, and I'm going to explain it. But simply stated, Scripture calls them the Feasts of the Lord. We are to go no further. A second view is that these feasts are divided up into spring feasts and fall feasts, and that these divisions are then given in relation to Christ's two advents. In other words, he fulfilled the first four feasts in his first advent, and he will fulfill the last three in his second advent. This is problematic for several reasons. First, there are actually eight feasts of the Lord, not seven. The first is a weekly feast throughout the year, and the other are seven annual feasts. And secondly, he fulfilled all, not half of them, in his first advent. And so I would say that this makes that view rather problematic. Another view is that the spring feasts are fulfilled in his first coming, and the fall feasts are too, but they have a future application in his second advent, which pertains to the nation of Israel alone. This is problematic because it then makes these, by default, feasts of Israel, which is something that those who hold to this view explicitly state. They equivocate on the naming of the feasts in order to justify this unjustifiable stand. What is true and correct is that all eight feasts are feasts of the Lord and they are fulfilled in the work of Christ. 
They are a part of the law of Moses, a law which is explicitly stated to be fulfilled by Christ in the epistles and which is recorded numerous times in the word of God. And not only is the law fulfilled, it is obsolete. It is annulled, it is set aside, and it is nailed to the cross. These terms are all explicitly stated in the New Testament. The law is done. Now, just in case somebody's watching this sermon online and they don't believe that, we're going to go very quickly to the book of Hebrews, and I'm going to cite you exactly where it says this in the book of Hebrews. We're going to go first to Hebrews chapter 7. And it says there in Hebrews chapter 7, For the priesthood being changed of necessity, there is also a change of the law. You've gone from one law to another law. In verse 18, it says, For on the one hand, there is an annulling annulling of the former commandment because of its weakness and unprofitableness. It says that the law of Moses is annulled. In chapter 8, it goes on and it says, In that he says a new covenant, speaking of the new covenant in Christ's blood, he has made the first obsolete It is done. It is obsolete and it is annulled. And then we can go on to chapter 10 and verse 9. It says, Then he said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, speaking of the ministry of Christ. He takes away the first that he may establish the second. So it is annulled, it is obsolete, and it is taken away. And then in the book of Colossians, Ephesians, Colossians, in verse 2.14, it says the following. Having wiped out the handwriting, meaning the law of Moses, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us and which was contrary to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. The symbolism there is that Christ embodies the law of Moses. His body was nailed to the cross and he died. And when he died, the law of Moses died with him. So it is annulled. It is obsolete. It is set aside. It is nailed to the cross. It is done. It is true that Israel is given seven more years under the law to accomplish certain things according to Daniel chapter 9. But these things are in relation to Christ's finished work of the law, not an acceptable observance of a now obsolete law. To say that Christ has yet to fulfill the three fall feasts is to say that Christ did not fulfill the law. If Christ did not fulfill the law, then Christ is not the end of the law for all who believe. If the law is not fulfilled, then the law is still in effect for all people. When it says in Romans that there is now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, we can be assured that this is an error because the law brings wrath and the law brings condemnation. If Christ didn't fulfill the law, he is not the Messiah We are not in Christ, and because we have put our hope in someone who is not Christ, and the law in its entirety would still be binding on us today then. This doesn't mean just the parts that we want to observe, like maybe Sabbath or not eating pork, and I mean, ooh, bacon, but all of the law. It means that we are condemned for wearing clothes made of two different materials. Does anybody in here have clothes of cotton and polyester or wool or anything else woven together? Okay, you're condemned because of that. We are condemned when we fail to tithe. Give, give, give. We are condemned when we harvest anything in the seventh year, Sabbath year cycle. We are condemned if we don't have tassels on the four corners of our garments. Does anybody here have tassels on the four corners of their garments? Okay, you're all condemned. Sorry about that. That is the repercussion of believing that the law is not fulfilled in Christ. Shall we go on? 
Remember what James says, if we keep the entire law and yet stumble in one point of that law, we are guilty of it all. If Christ did not fulfill the law, including the feasts, we stand condemned. Our text verse today comes from Colossians chapter 2. It says there in verses 16 and 17, So let no one judge you in food or in drink or regarding a festival or a new moon or Sabbaths, which are a shadow of things to come, but the substance is of Christ. I imagine that you're going to hear that same text verse for the next few weeks as we open each sermon on the feasts of the Lord. Paul's words about food and drink are given in relation to the dietary laws of Israel. If you want to eat bacon, go ahead. Let no one judge you in such things. The law is dead, nailed to the cross. His words concerning a festival are the feasts of the Lord that we're going to be looking at right here in Leviticus 23. Let no one judge you in such things. The law is dead, nailed to the cross. His note about the Sabbath is inclusive of the feast of the Lord known as the Sabbath and of all Sabbath observances which are found in the Old Testament. He uses the plural to cover any and all Sabbaths which are found in Israel's yearly calendar. Let no one judge you in such things. The law is dead, nailed to the cross. In fact, what Paul is doing in this verse is citing Hosea 2, verse 11, concerning these same things in relation to Israel. Israel would be judged by such things, but in Christ we are not. It's fun for heretics to pick and choose what they will or will not do in church, but it won't be fun when they stand before the Lord and find that they made a mockery of his finished work by deciding that what he did wasn't enough in their own narcissistic minds to please God. He asks us to trust Christ and in Christ alone. It's not that difficult unless you just can't stop looking in the mirror all day long. Today, we will look over the Feast of the Lord known as the Sabbath. There are four major views within what we would call Christianity on what is the Sabbath. The first is that of the Seventh-day Adventists. It is a moral law of God, and it is binding. Saturday is to be a Sabbath, and it is mandatory for all Christians to observe. This is something the Hebrew Roots Movement also teaches. The second is the Christian Sabbath view. This is where the Sabbath is changed to Sunday, and it is a mandatory day of observance. The third belongs to Luther. He says that the Sabbath was for the Jews, and it does not pertain to Christians, but rest and worship, though required, are not connected to any particular day. The fourth view is the fulfilled Sabbath. Fulfilled means fulfilled. Thank you. In Christ, we enter our rest, as the Bible states. Paul says in Romans 14, one person esteems one day above another. Another esteems every day alike. Let each be fully convinced in his own mind. That's verse 5 of chapter 14 of Romans. Obviously, taking Paul's words cited earlier from Colossians and that verse here from Romans, along with simple Christian logic, the fulfilled feast view is correct. The first is heresy, and it will only bring condemnation. The second will be addressed later, but it is nonsense. The third is not found in Scripture, although it isn't heretical or necessarily nonsense. It's just not correct. As far as the first, the heresy of Sabbath observance as a necessary requirement in today's church is truly pitiful. All the information that we need for salvation is found in Paul's epistles. He, as the apostle to the Gentiles, defines clearly and precisely what we need to do in order to be saved. 
what we need to do in order to be pleasing to God, and how to also instruct others in meeting those same goals. Nowhere does he say anything about Sabbath observance except to argue against it. What part of grace, what part of the concept of grace these heretics don't understand is very hard to grasp. It's a simple word with a simple meaning, as is the concept of a gift. One does not work in order to receive a gift. And though the Sabbath is a day of actively not working, it is a day of spiritual work in order to not physically work. Our hope and our rest is in Christ alone. This is a fundamental truth which is found in sound Christian doctrine. It's all to be found in his superior word. And so let's turn to that precious word once again, and may God speak to us through his word today, and may his glorious name ever be praised. I have only two thoughts for you today. The first is the feasts of the Lord. It's verses one and two. Verse one, and the Lord spoke to Moses saying, the main addressee here, as is most commonly seen, is Moses. It is he who will receive the laws laid out here directly from the Lord. In the preceding chapters, we have been given directions and commands concerning the holiness of the sanctuary, the holiness of the priests, the holiness of the people, the holiness of the sacrifices, and so on. All of these were in relation to the holiness of the Lord. This chapter now details the holiness of the Lord in relation to the annual calendar, times of special observances within each year. Verse 2, speak to the children of Israel and say to them, the Lord's words to Moses are directed to Benay Yisrael, or the children of Israel. The term Ben literally means son. However, the translation as children is appropriate. The reason for this is theological in nature. In the book of Galatians, Paul writes that as long as an heir is a child, he's no different than a slave. He then says in Galatians 4 verse 3, even so we, when we were children, speaking of people under the law, were in bondage under the elements of the world. However, he goes on in the next verses to say, but when the fullness of the time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those who were under the law that we might receive the adoption as sons. In Christ, we go from being children with no true rights in the family to becoming sons with full rights. As he says in Galatians 4, verse 7, Therefore you are no longer a slave, comparing a child under the law to a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir of God through Christ. That alone stands as a testimony to the superiority of the new covenant over the old. The old simply anticipated the new. In Christ, the old is gone because it has been fulfilled in him. The address now as children is appropriate. They will now be given instructions as children who are required to do certain things in anticipation of the time when these things will be realized in the work of Christ. Verse 2 continues, the feasts of the Lord, Moadei Yehovah, appointed times of Yehovah. The name Yehovah, translated as Lord, is used 36 times in this chapter. There is a heavy stress on this divine name. In contrast to this, the name Israel, when speaking of the people of the nation, is used only seven times, and it is always used in the sense of being the addressee, five times, or of the responsibilities laid upon them, two times. This is rather important to remember. These are not feasts of Israel, nor is that term ever used in Scripture. When the feasts are mentioned, it is always in relation to the Lord, directly or indirectly. 
in using the term feasts of Israel as has become popular in modern times. It takes the focus off of the Lord entirely. But it is the Lord, meaning Jesus, who has fulfilled each and every one of these feasts. By stating that they are feasts of Israel, a misguided concept of these somehow having a future fulfillment in national Israel is seen. This makes for incredibly bad theology, and it harms evangelistic efforts which otherwise might be effective. If people see the fulfillment of these feasts in their proper light, meaning in Christ Jesus, they will then be able to see their need for Christ Jesus. If Israel is the focus, this truth becomes obscured or even eliminated. The Hebrew word for feast here is moed. This comes from yaad, meaning to appoint, assign, or designate, something like that. That in turn comes from a primitive root, which means to fix upon, as by agreement or appointment. Thus, the moed is a specific meeting in time, place, and or appointment. Its first use in scripture was in Genesis 1 verse 14, when the stars were set in the heavens to be for signs and le moadim, or four seasons. Charles Benson states, these in our translation are termed feasts, but the word used here rather means solemn seasons or meetings. And as the Day of Atonement was comprehended in them, which was not a feast, but a fast, they certainly are improperly termed feasts. If one looks at these set times in a forward-looking way, he is absolutely correct. There is as much set restriction as there is command to accomplish. One cannot work on the Sabbath. In the Feast of Weeks, the people are told to do no customary work, and so on. However, if one in our dispensation looks back on what these feasts anticipated and rightly sees their fulfillment in Christ, then they truly are feasts of the Lord for us to revel in. He did the work. We receive and feast upon the benefits of that work. Still, Benson is correct. What is a more appropriate term would be appointed times. Verse 2 continues, which you shall proclaim to be holy convocations. Asher tikreu otam mikrae kodesh, which you shall call out, callings out holy. The word convocations here is mikra. It comes from the word kara, which is also used in this verse, translated as proclaim. Moses is instructed to call out the coming feasts as assemblies, thus callings out or convocations. Verse 2 continues, these are my feasts. Elehem Moadai. These they, my feasts. The term Moadai or my feasts is only used here and in Ezekiel 44, verse 24, where it is speaking of the future millennial reign of Christ, where his feasts and Sabbaths will again be observed. This should in no way cause confusion with the believer in Christ during this dispensation. In the millennium, some feasts will be observed by Israel in commemoration of what Christ did. This in no way means that these are to be observed now. In fact, to mandate observance of these feasts is to set aside the grace of Christ who fulfilled them for us. Paul speaks of this in Galatians 4, verses 9 through 11, where he says, But now, after you have known God, or rather are known by God, how is it that you turn again to weak and beggarly elements to which you desire again to be in bondage? You observe days and months and seasons and years, speaking of these very feasts and Sabbath days. I'm afraid for you, lest I have labored for you in vain." It is a futile thing indeed to attempt to merit God's favor apart from the work of Jesus Christ. 
to set aside what Christ has done and to attempt to please God through observance of an appointed meeting that has met its appointed fulfillment in Jesus' work is to merit bringing God's wrath down upon oneself. Let us not be so foolish as to have this attitude of ingratitude. If we believe that we can attain holiness through observing these feasts, we maintain that we have not become holy through the work of Jesus Christ. What a slap in God's face. Feast to the Lord, they were accomplished as is appointed. Together we celebrate what the Lord has done. They are fulfilled in Christ, the one who was anointed. In these feasts we see the work of God's own Son. Our observance isn't as the law mandated. No, our observance is in how we act toward our Lord Jesus. In Him we have our Sabbath rest, so the Bible has stated. And that is just the first of eight fulfilled by Christ for us. Each reveals something marvelous accomplished by the Lord, and so to Him we gratefully give thanks and praise. With Him always in our thoughts and contemplating His Word, we find the fulfillment of these special festal days. Our second thought today is the Feast of the Sabbath. It's verse 3. Verse 3 says, Six days shall work be done. Sheshet yamim Six days you shall do work. These words are directive in nature. Therefore, the week is divided into two sections, active work and active cessation from work. Man is not to be idle when he should be working, and man is not to be working when he should be at rest. What is curious is that one person, one person is being addressed in these words right here. The verb is second person singular. This is odd because at the end of this same verse, the verb will be plural. The work week in Israel is based on a seven-day calendar, beginning on Sunday and ending on a Saturday, just as it is in the United States today. Unlike our time schedule, though, each day begins at evening and goes through until the next evening. Thus, Sunday, the first day of the week, begins at evening, literally sundown on Saturday, and it goes through until the sundown of the next day. Things that needed to be done were to be done before the Sabbath, so that no work was to be done on the Sabbath. This, however, does not mean that one must work every day. If so, for example, it would violate the other mandated feasts of the Lord. Rather, what should be done was to be done, but not on a Sabbath. This pattern of working six days has its source in the early Genesis account. The evening-morning schedule is recorded at the end of each day of creation, beginning with Genesis 1, verse 5. With the completion of the creation on the sixth day, the record then states the following, Thus the heavens and the earth and all the host of them were finished, and on the seventh day God ended his work which he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work which he had done. Then God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it, because in it he rested from all his work which God had created and made. Thus Israel was instructed to labor six days and rest on the seventh, as is next scene. Verse 3 continues, But the seventh day is a Sabbath of solemn rest. Here the term Shabbat Shabbaton, or a resting day of solemn resting, is used. This specific term, Shabbat Shabbaton, is only used six times in all of Scripture. Four times it's speaking of the weekly Sabbath, once for the Day of Atonement, and once concerning the year of Jubilee. The people were to rest, and they were to contemplate God and His works on their behalf. Concerning this term, Shabbat, or Sabbath, it first must be understood that this is referring to Saturday. Biblically, there is no such thing as a Sunday Sabbath. To say, today is the Sabbath, only means 
Today is a Saturday, and it is my day of rest. There is no transfer of a Sabbath to a Sunday to be found in Scripture. That is a fallacy known as a category mistake. Understanding this, the word Shabbat implies rest and cessation from labor. This cessation of labor for Israel merely looks forward to a different type of rest. It was a foretaste of the blessed eternal rest which man lost, but which was promised to be restored. Man was created outside of the Garden of Eden and was rested in the Garden to worship and to serve his Creator. This was lost. Despite this matching the pattern of creation, and despite the Lord sanctifying the seventh day as a day of rest, even from the seventh day after creation began, there is no record of anyone observing a Sabbath, meaning a Saturday day of rest, until after the exodus from Egypt. At that time, at the giving of the manna, the Lord, through Moses, instituted the very first Sabbath. Here's his words. Then he said to them, This is what the Lord has said. Tomorrow is a Sabbath rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. Bake what you will bake today, and boil what you will boil, and lay up for yourselves all that remains to be kept until morning. Those who say that a Sabbath is still required today must make things up about what occurred at this time in Exodus, saying that there was confusion in the elders about what was to be done on the regular Sabbath because they had this double portion on Friday and they were confused about what to do with the second portion on a Saturday. Would they be allowed to violate the Sabbath to prepare it? That is absolute nonsense. Nothing in scripture indicates that a Sabbath existed at all until this point in history. Not a single verse outside of Genesis 2-3 even hints at it. Further, the text itself will later disprove this. Secondly, Genesis 2-3 only became a written fact at the giving of the law through Moses. And more, it was only written after the account concerning the manna in Exodus. Genesis 2 verse 3 simply describes the fact that God sanctified the seventh day, but it goes no further than that. There is nothing prescriptive added to the general statement which was made in Genesis. Thirdly, the reason which is given for the Sabbath in the presentation of the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20 and in the Ten Commandments of Deuteronomy 5, they're both given, but the reason given for each is different in both. In Exodus 20, it is based on creation. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, according to Exodus 20, verse 11. But in Deuteronomy 5, it is based on redemption. And remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God brought you out from there by a mighty hand and by an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. That's Deuteronomy 5, verse 15. Despite this, the two are tied together. Israel was already redeemed at the giving of the law at Sinai. Therefore, as a sign of God's rest, Following his creative efforts, which had subsequently been lost in the Garden of Eden, the redeemed of Israel were given the Sabbath. Thus, there is no contradiction between Exodus and Deuteronomy. One act leads naturally to the other. The fallen world could not be redeemed unless it had first been created. Everything is looking forward to God's rest, a rest which can only be found in Jesus Christ. As the law could only bring a curse, then the Sabbath was only a shadow looking forward to Christ's fulfillment of it. At the time after the Exodus, the Sabbath was uniquely revealed to Israel. It was at the time of their organization as a nation to show that the Lord is the creator and he is the redeemer. Until that point, there was no need to mandate the Sabbath to the world. 
And further, the words to the people in Exodus 16 when the Sabbath was first given directly clue us into this because it said there, tomorrow is a Sabbath rest. It does not say Hashabbat or the Sabbath. Instead, it leaves off a definite article. If the people were aware of the Sabbath as an institution, it would have said Hashabbat, the Sabbath. It does not. Instead, Moses was made aware of it in connection to the giving of the manna. Unfortunately, some versions utterly mistranslate that verse and add in two definite articles which do not exist in the Hebrew. For example, the King James Version says, Tomorrow is the rest of the Holy Sabbath unto the Lord. By adding these in, they insert inappropriate and confused theology into the text. And finally, in the same line of thought, Moses gave additional specificity by repeating the words and adding in the word holy. He said to Israel, tomorrow is a Sabbath rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. The entire phrase of Exodus 16 verse 23 smacks of and implies uniqueness and thus first time instruction concerning Sabbath requirements. The reason why it's important to know this is because of the highly divergent teachings on the Sabbath within Christianity. Those who teach that a Saturday Sabbath is required for Christians today will make the claim that it is an eternal standard of God that always existed for humanity. This verse in Exodus shows us very clearly that this is not true. In the giving of the Sabbath in connection with the manna came two pictures of Jesus. He is our bread and he is our rest. That he is our rest is seen explicitly in Hebrews 4, verse 3. It says, therefore, we who have believed do enter that rest. By faith in Christ, our heavenly bread, we enter into God's eternal rest, pictured by the giving of the Sabbath along with the manna. It is only a picture. This continued to be revealed in Exodus 16. In verse 25, it then said, Then Moses said, Eat that today, for today is a Sabbath to the Lord. Today you will not find it in the field. Again, there was no article in front of the word Sabbath. It simply said, A Sabbath. However, this was the formal institution of the Sabbath for Israel, and so it actually precedes the giving of the law. As the formal institution, the name was given to designate the day. Next, Exodus 16 shows that God provided in advance of the Sabbath for the Sabbath by providing manna. And third, he directed that what was provided on Friday was to be prepared on Friday in advance of the Sabbath. It then formed a picture of Christ coming after the giving of the law. He gave us Christ and then he gave us rest in Christ via fulfilling the law. The law was annulled through his completed work, and with it, the Sabbath day requirement was annulled. However, as an ordinance to Israel, there was more for them to learn at the time of the giving of both the manna and the Sabbath. In verse 26 of the same chapter, it said, Six days you shall gather it, but on the seventh day, the Sabbath, there will be none. In saying this to Israel, it was to be understood that this first Sabbath was not a one-time occurrence. Rather, it was to become the standard at all times and as long as the manna was provided. However, it could be inferred at that time that the Sabbath was then only to be observed during that period when the manna was given. It wasn't until the giving of the law that the Sabbath was fully incorporated into what was expected of Israel, even apart from the times when the manna was given. One might ask, well, who cares about that? 
But for Israel, we see an incremental giving of instructions for the Lord to progressively reveal his intentions to the people of Israel. Step by step, the Lord methodically shaped Israel to become his obedient people. By giving them a Sabbath in connection with the giving of the manna, he was preparing them for a time when the Sabbath would be required apart from the manna, which would be easier for them to adjust to. Being given two portions of manna and being told to prepare them on Friday and then not to work on Saturday or being told to prepare food on Friday and not do anything on Saturday when their houses were full of things that they had stored up through normal life. The giving of the manna for six days and withholding it on the seventh before entering a normal agricultural setting was a valuable preparation for the time when the manna would no longer be provided. The wisdom of God is seen in how he introduced the Sabbath into the lives of his people, Israel. After this initial giving of the Sabbath, it was incorporated into the Ten Commandments in Exodus chapter 20, giving specifics about what could and could not be done on that day. After that, it was introduced again in Exodus 31, where it was given very great specificity. In those verses is a unique chiastic structure. Let me go through it with you. It begins at the very top of the chiasm. Surely my Sabbath you shall keep. And then down at the bottom of it, on the seventh day, he rested and was refreshed. B, for it is a sign between me and you. B, it is a sign between me and the children of Israel. C, throughout your generations. C, throughout their generations as a perpetual covenant. D, you shall keep the Sabbath, therefore, for it is holy to you. D, therefore, the children of Israel shall keep the Sabbath to observe the Sabbath. E, everyone who profanes it shall surely be put to death. E, he shall surely be put to death. F, for whoever does any work on it. F, whoever does any work on the Sabbath day. And then the middle anchor verse, work shall be done for six days, but the seventh is the Sabbath of rest, holy to the Lord. In the first half of the chiasm, it explains the requirement. It then gives the naming of the punishment first, and then the reason for the punishment. The second half of the chiasm does the opposite. It gives the reason for the punishment and then the naming of the punishment and then the explanatory basis for the sequence. In the old covenant, man worked and then rested. In the new covenant, man rests and then works. A picture is made of the process of salvation in the two dispensations. Israel worked six days and then rested on the Sabbath. It was in anticipation of the time of rest which lay ahead when all things would be restored. With Christ's coming, we rest in honor of his finished work, and then we conduct our work week. This is why in the first half of the chiasm, line E gives the penalty, death, and then line F gives the reason for the penalty, working on the Sabbath. Whereas in the second half of the chiasm, the order is reversed. First is noted the reason for the penalty, working, and then is given the penalty, death. Our rest is in Christ and what he has done. We have died to the law. We now live and work in Christ. Understanding this, we see in Exodus 31 that the Lord told Israel that the Sabbath would be a sign between him and them, a sign of sanctification. However, for the believer in Christ, we do not receive our sign of sanctification through an external observance. Rather, our sign of sanctification is anybody? The sealing of the Spirit. It is received simply by placing faith in the finished work of Christ. 
Paul notes this in Romans chapter 15. He says, nevertheless, brethren, I have written more boldly to you on some points as reminding you because of the grace given to me by God that I might be a minister of Jesus Christ to the Gentiles, ministering the gospel of God, that the offering of the Gentiles might be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. The sign of the Sabbath is not at all all for this dispensation. With Christ's coming, we rest first in him and in honor of his finished work, and then we conduct our work. This is the lesson found back in Exodus 31 for those who will pay heed. After that, the Sabbath was mentioned one more time in Exodus. In 35.2, the mandating of the Sabbath is given with the warning that anyone who works on that day was to be put to death. After that, it immediately adds in something new to the Sabbath laws, saying, You shall kindle no fire throughout your dwellings on the Sabbath day. That's Exodus 35, verse 3. Along with all of the other things that the people were already told to not do on the Sabbath day, a new requirement was added in. No fire was to be kindled in any dwelling on the Sabbath. No manna was provided on the Sabbath, and so they were to prepare their food a day in advance of the Sabbath. As a further restraint, they were told to not even kindle a fire. To kindle a fire was a laborious process of work. As food wasn't cooked, they were not to consider making a fire for any other reason. As John Lang says about this, the addition, prohibiting the kindling of fire, indicates that the law of the Sabbath is made more rigorous in the matter of abstinence. The Israelites were to actively abstain from work in every possible way. The same is not true now. In Christ, we are given a different aspect of the same precept. We are not told to abstain from every work in order to attempt to merit God's favor. Instead, we are to rest in the finished work of Christ. In the end, whether before the cross or after, it is all done in relation to Christ. And that brings us to the relationship of the placement of the Sabbath requirements in Exodus chapter 31 and then in Exodus chapter 35. In Exodus 25 through the first half of Exodus 31, the instructions for the construction of the tabernacle were given. Immediately after that long section came the giving of the Sabbath law verses, showing that they were a sign of sanctification to Israel. In chapter 35 came the details of the actual construction of the tabernacle. That went all the way until the end of the book. But just prior to those details was the final note concerning the Sabbath requirements. Understanding the placement of these two Sabbath law passages shows us a simple and profound truth. The keeping of the Sabbath by Israel was tied directly into the presence of the Lord among them. It was he who sanctified them, and the Sabbath was a sign of that sanctification. Now in Christ, we have what that sign only pictured. As it says in Hebrews 4, verse 3, For we who have believed do enter that rest. The word used there to describe this rest is found in Acts chapter 7, where Stephen cites the Lord's question concerning his place of rest. And then... It is used 11 more times, but only in the book of Hebrews. There it explains the meaning of entering God's rest. It is a rest which is not at all found in the Sabbath day, but in Christ. In fact, in the New Testament, outside of the Gospels, which describe Jesus' fulfilling of the law, the term Sabbath is found only 10 times. Nine of those are in Acts and are only used in relation to Jewish synagogue observance. 
The final time is in Colossians chapter 2, our text verse of the day, where Paul adamantly speaks against being judged by anyone in relation to Sabbath observance. The reason for this is that Christ is our place of rest. It is through him that we are granted access once again into that garden of delight that we were expelled from so very long ago. As Paul says, the substance is of Christ. What is important to understand is that Paul's epistles are doctrine for the church age. To ignore his letters means that there is no doctrine for the church age. All theology thus becomes pick and choose as a path to God. Attempting to be justified before God through works sets aside both the notion of receiving a gift as well as the granting of grace. This is the error of those who state that we are to observe these festivals to the Lord, including the Sabbath, in order to be pleasing to Him. One cannot merit grace. It simply must be received. Anything else is not grace. Mandatory Sabbath observance is a heresy. It's that important for us to understand. You are saying that you are working your way to being pleasing with God, and it is a heresy. It will separate you from your Lord. Verse 3 continues, a holy convocation, mikra kodesh, convocation holy. This is what verse 2 specified for the feast days, and this is what is now repeated for the Sabbath. It is a holy convocation. The Lord is calling his people, Israel, to observe this day as a holy calling. Unlike the next seven feasts, this is the only weekly one, and thus it is set apart from the others. However, this in no way means that it is not a feast of the Lord. What it does mean, however, is that no other feast was to take precedence over it. Some of the feasts lasted a full week, and at other times, other feasts may have lined up with the Sabbath day. In such cases, the Sabbath requirements were not to be set aside. Instead, the Sabbath was to be kept to the Lord, despite whatever else occurred. This included the prohibition that, verse 3 continues, you shall do no work on it. Tau melacha lo ta'asu. All work, no, you shall do. The verb is second person plural. No work was to be conducted on the Sabbath day. There is no exemption from this. However, it is noted in Scripture and by the mouth of the Lord that priestly duties were to continue on even on the Sabbath days. This is seen, for example, in Matthew chapter 12. There it says this, At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath, and his disciples were hungry and began to pluck heads of grain to eat. And when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. But he said to them, have you not read what David did when he was hungry? He and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and ate the showbread, which was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priests. Or have you not read in the law that on the Sabbath, the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are blameless? Yet I say to you that in this place, there is one greater than the temple. But if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice you would not have condemned the guiltless. For the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. The priest's duties to the Lord took priority over a Sabbath day observance. Think it through. As those whose duties to the Lord were exempt, how much more then are those who are in the Lord because of his finished work also exempt from this? 
He is the Lord of the Sabbath. We are placed in Christ through faith in what he has done. And therefore, we are no longer under the laws which only pointed to him. Verse 3 finishes with these words. It is the Sabbath of the Lord in all your dwellings. The translation here is confusing, and it should rather read, it is a Sabbath to the Lord in all your dwellings. Otherwise, it seems like the Lord is even now working six days and taking the seventh day off. Rather, they were to work and then rest to the Lord, honoring him on this special day dedicated to him. Now, with his having fulfilled the law, we enter God's rest. This is the reason why the first part of the sentence is in the second person singular. Six days you shall work. The Lord specifically is speaking to Christ. You alone shall do the work. In the second half, it is in the second person plural. All work you all shall not do. This cannot be arbitrary, and it cannot simply be attributed to scholarly error. It is far too obvious to be a mistake. Instead, it is instructive. It is speaking of us resting in Christ's accomplished work. You, Christ, my son, shall do the work. You all, my people, shall rest in my son's work. It is his effort and not our own effort that gets us right with God. The words of Jesus, Paul, and the author of Hebrews all agree that our true rest is found in Christ and in him alone. The Sabbath was only a picture of what was to come concerning our rest in Christ. In Christ we proclaim feast fulfilled. With that knowledge, we are to rest in Christ, we are to trust in Christ, and be pleased to have been reconciled to God solely by the work of Christ. Thank God for Jesus Christ. If you're listening to this sermon, and if you're trying to merit God's favor through your works, be it Sabbath observance or helping old ladies across the street in order to merit his favor, you're making a fundamental mistake. You are placing yourself in the equation. What you need to do is remove yourself and put Jesus in it completely and wholly. By trusting in what he has done, you will be in the sweet spot and on your way to glory. And then when you say, I have trusted in the work of Christ alone, then your works will be counted for rewards, but not until then. Okay, everybody got that? We are to trust in Christ. We have sin in our lives and we cannot be pleasing to God no matter what we do. This is eternally the case. There is no time in our lives that we will ever be pleasing to God until we come to Jesus Christ. We can work from the moment we're born until the moment we die, and we will be no closer to God because of sin in our lives. Christ came to resolve that. He came to take away our sin debt. And by doing that, we now enter into Christ. And because he is in his rest, he is our place of rest, we rest in him. Mandatory Sabbath observance only separates you from your God. If you want to observe your Sabbath, go ahead. If you want to observe no day of the week at all, go ahead. You are no closer to God and you are no further away from God by doing those things. The only way that you will get closer to God is by reading his word, fellowshipping with other believers, those type of things that fill you with the Holy Spirit. But you're not going to get any closer to God by working your way to heaven. You will never make it. Please trust in Christ and in Christ alone. Our closing verse today comes from Hebrews 4. It's verse 10. For he who has entered his rest has himself also ceased from his works as God did from his. How simple is that? How absolutely simple is that? God gives us a pattern in the book of Genesis. He works six days and he has a day of rest. And then he creates man 
and he places him in the Garden of Eden. He wasn't created there. He places him there. The word that he uses is, I think it's Yanach. He rests him in the garden. He's there to rest, but he blew it and he's kicked out of the garden. So now let's read that again with that understanding. For he who has entered his, meaning Jesus rest, has himself also ceased from his works as God did from his. We are now back in the garden. We are in God's rest. Everything in the Bible is pointing to that moment in time when Jesus Christ would come and restore us. Now, physically, we're not in heaven right now. We're not in the Garden of Eden. But positionally, by being in Christ, we have entered into his rest. Please don't ever forget this. Get mad at me and go to another church. Don't go to a church which requires this type of stuff. If you're on vacation and somebody starts telling you you have to observe the feasts of the Lord, get out of that church. If they say you have to tithe, if they say you have to observe a Sabbath, whatever, get out of that church. The most important thing for you is to understand theology and all theology points to Jesus Christ and what he has done for us. Okay. Next week is Leviticus 23. It's verses four through eight redeemed and living in holiness. Christ is our head. It's entitled the feasts of the Lord, the Passover and unleavened bread. That'll be our 37th Leviticus sermon. I have a point for you to remember from this particular sermon. Let's see if you can get this, all right? Is anybody going to remember this? Christ is our Sabbath rest. By faith in him, we are restored to paradise. Have you heard that a couple times already today? It's wonderful. I thought that would make your final point of the day. He is our Sabbath rest. The Lord has you exactly where he wants you. He has a good plan and a purpose for you. Even if you have a lifetime of sin heaped up behind you, he can wash it away and he can purify you completely and wholly. So follow him and trust him and he will do marvelous things for you and through you. Okay? And we've got a very long poem today. It's it's a long one. Three verses. The Feast of the Lord, the Sabbath. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, these are the words he was then relaying. Speak to the children of Israel and say to them, the feasts of the Lord, which you shall proclaim to be my holy convocations. These are my feasts. Pay heed now to my word. Six days shall work be done, but the seventh day is a Sabbath of solemn rest, a holy convocation. You shall do no work on it as previously addressed. It is the Sabbath of the Lord in all your dwellings. Pay heed to this word. Lord God, a Sabbath of rest you gave to Israel, a weekly feast to honor you. But in this feast is a story to tell, a story of what Christ Jesus did do. He came to this place of work, toil, and sweat, and he labored for us so that we could truly find rest. In him, the work is finished, the requirement is met, and so now in him, we are eternally blessed. We read in Hebrews 4 and verse number 3 that in him, when we believe, we find our true rest. The feast is fulfilled. We now rest peacefully. Yes, in Christ Jesus, we are eternally blessed. Hallelujah to you, O God, great things you have done. Hallelujah to you, O God, for the giving of Jesus, your son. Hallelujah and amen. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the chance to come and hear about the Sabbath. Lord, this word is so clear. It is so precise and it is so evident what you are trying to tell us. And yet we have people that twist your word. They confuse people. They put them back under the bondage of the law. They try to steal away the joy that we can have in you by resting in you alone. Lord, we thank you that you are here with us and that you are our place of rest. 
then we certainly pray for Paul, who is, even though he's not in church, and he's not resting right now, his body is in turmoil, and he's having difficulties, as is our brother Graham over in Scotland, and we would pray for them, that you would give them the rest that they need, and that they would be strong again and be able to get up and get about. Then we certainly pray for anybody else that is not finding that true rest that you have granted to us. We would pray that they would be comforted in their hearts, comforted in their souls, and that they would find the peace and the joy that surpasses all understanding, and that someday we all together will enter the true rest, which is found in Christ our Lord when we stand before you and for all eternity worship you in your presence. We have that blessed foretaste now. We thank you for it, and we anticipate its fulfillment soon. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. We get the Lord's Supper directly from the Bible. There Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the same night in which he was betrayed took bread, and he would have given thanks over it with these words, Baruch atah Adonai Eloheinu melech haolam hamotzi lechem min haaretz. Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who brings forth bread from the earth. And he broke it, and he said, Take and eat. This is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he took the cup after supper, and he would have blessed us as well. He would have said, Baruch atah Adonai Eloheinu, Melech haolam, Borei peri hagafen. Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe, creator of the fruit of the vine. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Good to have you back. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. I did not get a hug from you. The one person I didn't get a hug from. Here we go. (laughs) The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Thank you. I'll mention that. Thank you. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. I completely forgot to mention this at the beginning of the service. Doctor just reminded me. Usama will be here Thursday night for the Bible class. Oh, really? This Thursday night. And so I meant to tell you, if you're online and you want to have a really great presentation, he's the guy to give it. And so uh, he will be doing our Bible class on Thursday night. I hope you'll watch. If you can, yeah, if you can't come to the church, please watch it online. He's a really great speaker, and we'll hope that uh, what he has will edify everybody. The first half of his talk was really good. So anyway, we'll go ahead and go to the Lord. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the chance to come to your table and to, uh, to honor and worship you and to remember what you did until you come again. And there is that promise in this, this uh, taking of the Lord's Supper that you are coming again. And so we long for that day, Lord. We know that it's in your timing and that we have to leave it in your capable hands, but we sure hope that it will be soon. You're a great God. We'll just uh, trust you for the perfect moment in time. And uh, we just love you and praise you and we exalt you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Amen.